The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship. When we are in fellowship with God, then God the Holy Spirit is working his sanctifying ministry in our lives when we sin. Scripture says that we grieve and quench the Holy Spirit so that that sanctifying ministry is squelched. The only way to recover is through the use of 1 John 1.9, which says if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession is a grace operation just as salvation is. It's not dependent upon who we are, what we do, how we feel about our sins. We don't need to feel sorry for our sins because that's nothing but blatant hypocrisy because, as I always say, we may feel terribly sorry or shocked that we just committed that sin, and so we try to impress God with our uh, remorse. But God knows we're going to commit that sin 17,592 more times, and so He is not impressed with our remorse. It is simply a matter of recognizing that we have violated the standards of God. We have missed the mark. We have sinned. We admit our sin to God, and we are instantly cleansed, restored to fellowship, and recover the filling of the Holy Spirit. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we are in right relationship with the Lord, ready to study His Word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Now, Father, we do thank you that we have this privilege and opportunity in this nation of ours to have the freedom to gather together, to freely teach your word, to freely proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross as a substitute for our sins. He paid the penalty for every sin, past, present, and future, so that salvation is not dependent upon us. It is not dependent upon our works, either to... Uh, gain salvation or to maintain salvation. And because of what you have done for us, we respond in gratitude. We realize that you have revealed yourself to us and that that revelation is contained only in the 66 books of the Old and New Testament and that by studying them, your Holy Spirit uses them in our lives to mature us and conform us to the image of Christ. So now we submit ourselves to the study of your word because that is the highest form of worship. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. It's been, what, two or three weeks since we uh, were in Judges, because I have been on vacation, which actually turned into into what turned out to be more of a working vacation than a vacation per se. had the opportunity while I was in Houston to uh, have a short prophecy conference at a church there. And that went pretty well, but of course, instead of relaxing, I was having to study and focus. But it was also gratifying to run into a number of people in the Houston area who are 
avid tapers from Preston City Bible Church, and they express their gratitude to everyone here that uh, makes it possible for them to get the tapes and to uh, be fed spiritually uh, from this out-of-the-way place on the backside of Connecticut almost. So that was it's always good to hear words of encouragement and to realize the uh, ongoing impact of the ministry here. In fact, what was interesting was I got something came across on the, on the uh, tape orders from the Internet from someone in Australia who said that somehow they had gotten a hold of the second lesson in Judges and found it so fascinating that they ordered, were ordering the rest of the series. How in the world people are coming up with tapes in such out-of-the-way places, uh, I don't know. Uh, it's just going to be interesting to find out how all the permutations of this and how, how the Lord uses the ministry here to get the word around the world. But we are developing a global ministry from this uh, out-of-the-way, unsuspecting site in Connecticut. So that's always, always exciting. Also had a chance while I was gone, ended up the vacation time with a couple of days of uh, conference in Fort Worth, went to the Conservative Theological Society meeting, which is uh, hosted by Tyndale Theological Seminary in Fort Worth. Some of you are familiar with that. And Dan was able to fly down. I also want to say I appreciate Dan being able to cover for me while I was gone, and I understand he did a great job working through uh, uh, Hebrews and also getting into a little Old Testament study in 1 Samuel 15. And uh, he's continuing to develop his spiritual gift. And this is a great opportunity for us to also, for me to also express my appreciation and his as well, I'm sure, that y'all haven't stoned him, run him out of the church yet, as he is uh, learning. The only way to learn to teach the Word is to get up in the pulpit and teach the Word. And uh, as we go along, we have all made mistakes. I just thank God my mother somehow lost the first five or six sermons that I ever ta- taught. She had them on tape, and we don't ever want anyone to ever find those. So, uh, But we all go through that learning process, and I got to listen to Dan again on Wednesday night, and he did a fantastic job on 1 Samuel 15, so I know that was uh, a good time for everybody in studying what he had to teach, especially uh, since he spent so much time in studying Hebrews the last few years. But uh, anyway, I was talking about the Conservative Theological Society meeting, and that was important because, once again, we got to uh, spend some time with people like uh, on our prayer list, like Henry Hastings, who's pastor of, uh, I think it's Atlanta Grace Bible Church now. That's the new name. And um, he was there with two deacons from his church, and we spent a lot of time together talking about many different issues, both theological as well as church-related. And uh, Tommy Ice was there, spoke a couple of times, and most of you remember when Tommy was here. So that was always good for uh, me to renew our friendship as it continues. And uh, we learned some new things about prophecy, contemporary events, and things of that nature, which I'll uh, deal with as we go along. But also, we got into some interesting studies on things that are going on uh, theologically today. And I will... uh, bring some of that to bear in some of our upcoming studies. Well, we better get with it in Judges. Let's review a minute where we are in Judges and the background of Judges. I had stated from the very beginning that Judges is one of the first historical, it is the first known historical analysis of history. Now, one of the things that we often hear in the classroom is that the Greeks were the fathers of history. Everybody goes to Herodotus and Thucydides. Herodotus is said to be the first his, the father of, histor- of history. But history is his story. It is the outworking of the plan and purposes of God. And there is a difference bet- between history and what we, one might call chronicles or just the recording of events that have taken place. Uh, uh, in human society. And history is when you do analysis of those events, when you're trying to understand the whys and the wherefores, the purposes of these events and their interconnection with one another. And when we look at judges, we see an analysis of history, not just a recording of facts, 
but that the human author, under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, is selecting certain events that took place during this period of the Dark Ages in Israel in order to, and uses them as, as, to illustrate the depravity and the decline in the nation because of their rejection of God, their apostasy, and their turning to the fertility religions of the ancient world, especially in Canaan. And so Judges is painting the picture of how a culture that starts off grounded in the Word of God, a culture that starts off focused on truth, as it was under Joshua when they first invaded the land and when they conquered the Canaanites, and how that culture declined and deteriorated because they got away from the Word of God. And whenever a culture, subculture, family, a family group is a subculture, whenever any group quits self-critiquing themselves, or quits the self-critique from the framework of Bible doctrine, then they are going to fall into the morass of pagan thought, human viewpoint thought, which the New Testament defines as demonic thought. So we have been studying Judges. And we have seen the uniqueness of judges. And the reason they are now able to analyze themselves is because they have the framework of the Mosaic Law. They have the framework of the Mosaic Law, which gives them the information they need in order to analyze what is going on in history. Now, we have to understand that in the book of Judges, two basic themes are developed. First of all, the grace of God. The grace of God. People always have a problem with sin. They somehow think that somehow we can sin so much that it is too great for the grace of God. That is blasphemy. God is omniscient. That means God knows all the knowable. Throughout all of eternity, He has known all the knowable. There is nothing that God can learn. God neither increases nor diminishes in knowledge. There is nothing that occurs in our life or in human history that God was not fully aware of billions and billions and billions of years ago. So we can commit no sin that is a surprise to God, and therefore there is no sin that God did not make provision for covering under the category of His grace, which is undeserved merit. That's The emphasis is on undeserved or unearned blessing. And this is what we see in Judges. The nation fails again and again and again, and we just... We just watch how the nation continues through these cycles of, of disobedience and discipline, and then God provides a deliverer. And then they go through the cycle again, and each time they get deeper and deeper into the morass of sin and carnality and apostasy. And yet, nevertheless, God never gives up on them. So that's the first theme. The second theme is the apostasy of the nation and the dynamics of that apostasy. So if we're going to understand and interpret all of this, especially when we come to these last five chapters of Judges, which contain some of the uh, most bizarre events in all of Scripture, we have to have go back and, and set up and establish our framework from the Scriptures so that we can properly understand what the author is communicating and what God has to teach us. Now, we have to realize that the Bible is not put together in some hodgepodge way. There is a divine viewpoint framework of history. I'm going to have to adjust this a minute. I guess that's as large as it will get for now. Um, starts off with the first 11 chapters in Genesis. This is why those first 11 chapters from the creation to the events after the Tower of Babel, why those events are so crucial and why it is those 11 chapters that are attacked again and again and again by human scholarship, by academia, and by those who reject the Bible. Because if you remove that foundation, everything else falls. You either take those events as, hap as have happened literally and that those events occurred exactly as described in Scripture, or everything else falls. It's like knocking down that first domino. Everything else uh, falls from there. In those first 11 chapters, there's a foundation of doctrine. We understand who God is as the Creator. That emphasizes His sovereignty. Now, some folks overemphasize the sovereignty of God, but we see the sovereignty of God at the beginning, that God is the one who establishes the rules. Along with that... We see that man fails. Adam sinned. 
So we see the correlation to the sovereignty of God, which is human volition, human responsibility, that God decreed in eternity past that His sovereignty would coexist with human volition and He would not override or destroy man's responsibility and man's free will. We understand, too, from those first 11 chapters that God has a plan and God has a purpose for mankind and He is working out that plan and purpose in human history. So the foundation is laid in the first 11 chapters through the creation, the fall, and the flood, which gives us an understanding of what God is doing with the human race. The next stage in the edifice is understanding grace. Grace is obviously there before the Abrahamic covenant. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. But grace is not fully developed as a doctrine until you start coming to the Abrahamic covenant. That God chose Abraham. Not because of who Abraham was, not because of what Abraham had done. He does not choose Abraham because Abraham is super spiritual. When we study Abraham's life from Genesis chapter 12 through Genesis chapter 18 and 19, we realize that Abraham is just as flawed and just as much a sinner as any of us, and that God chose Abraham because of who and what God is and not because of who and what Abraham was. And God establishes an unconditional covenant with Abraham so that God's blessings are not dependent upon what man does. What God's blessings are not dependent upon what Abraham does. God's, God's blessing for Israel, therefore, ultimately, is not going to be dependent upon uh, obedience or disobedience, but upon an unconditional promise. That then helps us to understand that our salvation is based on that same kind of unconditional promise, that it, since it is not based on who we are or what we do, we can never lose it. Those people who think that you can do something to lose your salvation are people who somehow think that there is something we can do to earn or gain our salvation. And that is called works in the Scripture. And the Scripture says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the free gift of God not of works, lest any man should boast. Titus 3.5 says, It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So grace is first fully understood through the Abrahamic covenant. And then the next major concept that's developed in the Mosaic Law is the concept of loyalty and love. And that's really instantiated in the first five commandments. In the first five commandments where God says, You shall have no other God before me. You shall not make idols. And then the third commandment which emphasizes not taking the Lord's name in an unworthy manner. Most people think of that in terms of some kind of profanity, but that is not at all what that means in the context, which I'll cover in just a minute. In the Mosaic Law, you have a framework of mandates which explain that love and loyalty are related to one another. Love and loyalty are related to one another. This is clear in the New Testament when Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You can't separate loyalty and faithfulness from God. So what we learn in the Mosaic Law is that loyalty to God always has a standard. It is always related to a series of absolutes, and those are defined for Israel. Notice, the Mosaic Code was directed to Israel, not to Gentiles. It was their constitution. It was their legal document for establishing the theocracy and their special relationship to God, who was the king over Israel. Loyalty to God always has a standard, and that's expressed in the Mosaic Law. So it gives us an objective measure of love for God. Love for God then becomes the foundation for all other love. When you have an objective standard for defining and evaluating love, what you begin to realize is that love is not just emotion. It's not, it's not a feeling. It's not sentiment. But love is rooted and grounded in knowledge of God and in volitional choices. Once you get away from that, then love is reduced to just a fluid, mutating feeling. One day you have it, the next day you don't. And people who don't understand the biblical concept of the relationship of loyalty to love will never have what we call impersonal or unconditional love. And that's the foundation for all of the love. And when you don't have that, then 
then relationships are going to fail and falter. Marriages will fall apart and ultimately it wipes out every one of the divine institutions. It destroys marriage, it destroys family, and it will break down a nation because without impersonal love, people will not know how to, will not be able to have true tolerance for one another. Not this pseudo-tolerance that is popular today, which means basically approving what everybody is doing. But true tolerance means that you are going to allow other people the freedom to be wrong without judging or condemning them. But that doesn't mean that you accept the behavior, accept what's right or wrong, or approve it. Yet today we have many uh, groups in our country who want their sinful activity to be approved of and rather than just simply tolerated. And so they're trying to redefine the language. But this is the divine viewpoint framework. And what we see is if, um, back it up a minute, the Abrahamic covenant and the concept of grace is based on previous revealed doctrine of the creation, fall, and flood. If you were to take out the bottom foundation, the Abrahamic covenant would be meaningless. If, on the other hand, you take out the first two floors, then there is no foundation for loyalty and love. And furthermore, we realize that there is a connection between loyalty and love because one of the major Hebrew words that is used to speak of God's love in the Old Testament It's sometimes translated steadfast love, loyal love, faithful love, but it is the Hebrew word chesed. And chesed refers to the loyal, faithful, steadfast love of God. That it is based on who God is, it is based on His immutable character, and it is not based on any circumstances in in our lives. So God establishes the Mosaic Law. And the Mosaic Law promised at the end to Israel that if you obey me, I will give you certain blessings, and if you don't, I will... Uh, discipline you. And God was fully within His rights because of Israel's disobedience during the period of the judges to wipe out the nation. But God didn't because when the Mosaic Law was was uh, abrogated by Israel, God falls back on the unmerited grace as expressed in the Abrahamic Covenant. This is why there's an God revealed these doctrines and developed them in a particular order in Scripture, and that is a doctrine known as progressive revelation. That is, over a period of time, God progressively revealed and added to His revelation. Not that He changed anything, but there's an unpacking, an unfolding, a development of doctrine over the from the pages of Scripture so that what is contained in seed form in Genesis chapter 3 is more fully explained in the Gospel of John, as it were. Now, in order to understand the dynamics of Judges chapter 17, we have to go back and look at a particular passage in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 12. Deuteronomy chapter 12 is in the context of a restatement of the Mosaic Law. Deuteronomy is, in fact, Moses' parting sermon to the nation. It is, was delivered to the nation just before Moses went to be with the Lord. And it is a restatement of the law. That is why it is called Deuteros Namas, Deuteronomy. Deuteros means two. Namas is law, so it's law part two. And here Moses restates all the stipulations of the Mosaic law to the conquest generation. These are not the... This is not the Exodus generation. They were apostate, and they all had to go through discipline in the wilderness, and they were not allowed to enter the land. These are their children. They have been studying under uh, great men of God and men of doctrine and faith, such as Joshua, Caleb, and Moses, and they have been positive to the Word, and they are about to enter into the land. And so Deuteronomy chapters 12 through 16 is going to establish the basis for unity and unification in the nation. And this is foundational to understand much of what goes on in the Old Testament. And chapter 12 lays the foundation for unity of worship. Unity of worship. Chapter 13 is going to lay the foundation for unity of doctrine. Even in the New Testament, our unity in the church is to be a unity of faith. Faith there meaning doctrine. It is not despite faith. 
today in ecumenicalism. Everybody wants to get together and be united because we've all had some experience with something we call God or Jesus, some kind of spiritual insight, spiritual hot flash, whatever it might be. And so we can all get together and uh, chant, oh, how I love Jesus. And there's no content, no meaning, no doctrine to anything. And we all just... Uh, just enjoy being enmeshed in our little uh, emotional moment there. But that's not what the Bible talks about. There's a unity based on faith, a unity of worship. There are specific prescribed uh, mandates for worship in the Old Testament as well as in the New. They differ because the New Testament relates to the church, Old Testament related to Israel. Chapter 13 is unity of doctrine. Chapter 14 and 15 emphasizes the unity of culture. And then in chapter 16, there's the unity related to national holidays, observance of special feast days in Israel's calendar that all the nation was to, uh, all the, everyone in the nation was to um, follow. And it emphasizes their patriotism to their nation and loyalty to their country. Now let's just go over a few things in Deuteronomy chapter 12 because this is foundational to what happens in Judges 17. Judges, I mean, Deuteronomy 12, 1 reads, These are the statutes and the judgments which you shall carefully observe in the land which Yahweh, notice the uppercase Lord there. In your Bibles, when you have an uppercase Lord, that is to indicate that in the original Hebrew text, you have the name of God, Yahweh, uh, wrongly translated Jehovah. Jehovah is really kind of an invented word. The Hebrew language in the early stages did not include vowels. It was just consonants. And so you had the name for God, which is called the sacred tetragrammaton, the sacred four letters, Y-H-W-H. And the Jews, out of respect for God, never pronounced that name. Whenever they would be reading the Scripture and they would come across the name of God, they would read Adonai, which is the Hebrew for Lord. And so in order to remind the reader, when they eventually developed vowel points, in order to remind the reader to read Adonai rather than Yahweh, they put the Hebrew vowels for Adonai under the four letters, the under Yahweh, so that when you transliterate that over into English, then it came out Jehovah. Uh, that W and the V shifts back and forth, same as the J and the Y, because of the influence of Germanic scholarship on Hebrew language. And remember, in German, uh, you don't pronounce a J, you pronounce it like a Y, and you don't pronounce the W, you pronounce it like a V. So that's why, why, how that developed. But whenever you see that name, whenever you see the uppercase uh, Lord for Yahweh, then what that emphasizes is God in his covenant relationship to Israel. It was when Moses uh, was called by God at the burning bush and God commissioned him to deliver the people. And Moses said, uh, whom should I say sent me? And God said, Yahweh, because I am that I am, tell them I am sent you. And so this particular name of God is always a reminder of God's unconditional covenant relationship with Israel. So he says, uh, these are the statutes and judgments which you shall carefully observe in the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, that would remind them of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of your fathers has given you to possess as long as you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. In other words, they were to completely eradicate every competing worship site in the land, every altar, every high place, every temple, even if it had the name of Yahweh attached to it. Every competing religious worship site was to be wiped out and destroyed except for the one that God designated. And see, what happens today in religion, it happened then as it does now, is people try to justify their, their uh, false ideas by attaching God's name to it. And that is really what it means to take the Lord's name in vain. That's the third commandment in the Ten Commandments. It doesn't mean necessarily to uh, utter the Lord's name as some sort of expletive. What it means is, is to assign in an empty or vain manner the name of God to some enterprise. So if you go out and call your, and call your religious activity by the name of God and it has nothing to do with, with the Bible, then that is taking the 
Lord's name in vain. If you say this is God's will for my life and you don't have a clue, that's taking the Lord's name in an empty or vain manner. And so God does not want his name attached to anything that is not the truth of God's word. So verse 2, they were to destroy all of these worship sites. Verse 3, and you shall tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, and burn their asherim with fire. It's a little violent. You know, people today just wouldn't put up with that. That would, uh, doesn't fit modern man's conception of God. God has to be sweet and gentle and tolerant. But God is not going to put up with any religious competition. So everything is to be destroyed. You shall cut down the engraved images of their gods, and you shall obliterate their name from that place. You shall not act like this at all to the Lord your God. And this tells us that there is a distinction, a radical difference between the way believers are to worship God and the way unbelievers worship their gods. And one of the problems with Christianity throughout the ages is we've always been influenced by the ideas and the thoughts and the values and the worship setting of pagan, non-Christian religions. That was a problem with the Corinthians. They imported tongues and all kinds of other things into um, their worship because they were saved out of that background and that was what they were trained in. That's one reason they were used to having women priests. Uh, priestesses in the Bacchanal uh, religion, in the uh, Dionysian religion. And so when they came to church, it was not unusual for them to, uh, in their background, have women in positions of authority. And so now they let women have positions of authority and to be preachers. And Paul said women are to keep silent in the church. It's not because Paul had some problem with women, but because in terms of God's ordained role structure for males and females. Men were designated the leaders in spiritual things, and women have other and just as significant roles, but different roles, and they're not to um, be exchanged one for the other. So what we see in these first four verses is that Deuteronomy eliminates all competitive religious systems in the land, authorizes the destruction of all unauthorized worship centers, and emphasizes exclusivity emphasizes exclusivity. There is only one way, God says. There are not many ways. Man wants to say there are many ways to God, but God says there is only one way. Then we come to verses 5 and 6. Verse 5 reads, But you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God shall choose from all your tribes to establish His name there for His dwelling. And there you shall come. And there you shall bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the contribution of your hand, your votive offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. Two points we see here is, first of all, this establishes one central sanctuary in Israel. There is only one place to which the Jews are to come to worship God, and that was at the tabernacle and later the temple. And at this point in time uh, that we're talking about in terms of judges, that the tabernacle was located at Shiloh, and that was the only authorized place of worship in Israel. Second thing we note is that this establishes a specific code of ritual and worship. There's a specific code of ritual and worship that changed in the church age. Now we worship God by means of the Holy Spirit and truth. They did not have the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. But Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well that there was a time coming when worship would not be located in one particular place, but that men would worship God by means of the Holy Spirit and by means of truth. So there would be a shift there. And now we have the local church, and worship takes place in the local church. But in every dispensation, there is still a specific code of ritual and worship Man is not to generate his own ideas of worship. Worship is not what I think it is or what makes me feel like I've worshipped God. Worship is defined objectively by God. It's on the basis of the Holy Spirit and on the basis of Bible doctrine. Now, if we skip down towards the end of the chapter, we'll see that there's a warning associated with this. A warning associated with this. In verse 30 we read, Beware that you are not ensnared to follow them, that is, after the false gods, after they are destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, How do these nations serve their gods, that I also may do likewise. In other words, don't begin to think 
that because they seem to be blessed or they seem to have some measure of success, they seem to have uh, uh, an excessive amount of productivity in their crops, that somehow that is related to their false worship. You see, this is a problem we get into today, is people think that because they do certain things, and they also seem to have a level of prosperity, happiness, or success, that somehow those are related and the prosperity, happiness, or success validates whatever their religious practice is. This is a major problem today, and it's one of the things you often hear in terms of phony testimonials among the health and wealth gospel crowd, or what's also called prosperity theology. That somehow, if I just... And people, you know, the problem with that and the appeal of it is that people are always looking for that quick fix, the, the magic bullet, that somehow I didn't get it all at the cross. You know, that's the basic heresy, the basic error in the charismatic thinking, is that somehow, I, now I'm saved, but, but I'm missing something. I just don't seem to have that, that joy that was there when I was first saved. I don't seem to, uh, I read in the Scriptures that I should have the joy of the Lord and all of these other uh, blessings, and they don't seem to be mine right now, so maybe I didn't get it all at the cross. There needs to be some sort of secondary blessing, some post-salvation experience. And so they develop the idea of a secondary baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues and and there are several other things that come along, but somehow I'm missing something, and if I just jump through that hoop, just have this experience or do that thing, then all of a sudden then God will give me everything else in the Christian life. And that is a slap in the face to God, because God gave us everything at the point of salvation. Ephesians 1.3 says that He has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the high places. We are spiritual aristocracy. At the instant of salvation, we are adopted into the family of God. It is a royal family. We are a royal high priest, and there is nothing that we missed. The only problem is we don't understand everything that God has given us because we haven't studied His Word. We don't know the doctrines that are there. So we are, because of lack of knowledge, we don't have the kind of growth that we should have, and therefore we don't seem to have the kind of life that God seems to promise. And so what happens is we end up, people end up getting frustrated, and then they say doctrine doesn't work, and the next thing they know they're pursuing various experiences, and they're no longer in a spiritual growth position. This is exact, exactly what happened with Israel as we have studied in the period of the Judges. They began to look elsewhere. They, didn't, they thought they could find prosperity, happiness, and meaning in life from going after the false gods of the Baal worship, the Canaanites. And as I have stated many times, the, Baal, the Baalim, the Asherim, and all the Canaanite gods were all part of what's called fertility worship. In an agrarian society, the idea was that if I could get the gods to make my crops fertile, make me fertile, I have more kids, uh, more kids to help out on the farm, I'll be more productive, be wealthier, and it's just the Old Testament version of the health and wealth gospel. But God warns against this. Verse 31 of Deuteronomy 12, You shall not behave thus toward the Lord your God, for every abominable act which the Lord hates they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. And we've seen that even in paganism there is the immolation of children, child sacrifice, uh, burnt offerings, and we saw how Jephthah was influenced that way to the point that he sacrificed his daughter. Deuteronomy 12.32, God says, Whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it, nor take away from it. It is the revealed word of God, then, that is the basis for doctrine. And then in chapter 13, he goes on to talk about the unity of doctrine. And in those verses, what God establishes is that, that uh, no matter, uh, warns them against, is no matter what supernatural signs or what mir- alleged miracles may accompany someone's religious claims, if it violates the doctrine of the Word, then they are to be eliminated. And so there was the death penalty for anyone who, pro- who prophesied and whose prophecies did not come 100% true. That's sort of a, uh, a sticking point for those who have a problem with God, and they always go to Exodus, to the Ten Commandments in Exodus 19, and say, well, God says, thou shalt not kill. 
But God says they were to execute false prophets and false teachers. Now, that is not an application today, but it was under the Mosaic Law. And God clearly authorized capital punishment. Unfortunately, it's not always practiced in a fair and legitimate manner, but that does not mean that the principle of capital punishment is not valid. The principle was clearly laid down both in the Old and New Testament, and even though some people may say, well, why would God do that? Man can't apply it in a judicial manner. Nevertheless, God is omniscient. He knows that man would fail many times and apply it injudiciously. Nevertheless, God delegated that authority for the stability of a nation and to end criminality. God hates the criminal and supports the victim. Unfortunately, modern law loves the criminal and uh, uh, does not do anything for the victim. And so we need to put our focus on the victim and not on the rights and privileges of the criminal because the criminal has invalidated that. So this is the background to understand what goes on in Deuteronomy, I mean Judges chapter 17. So let's turn back to our passage in Judges chapter 17. Last time we were introduced to this odd little family, Micah and his mother. And this, is, this goes back in time to the beginning of the period of the Judges. The period from Judges 3-6 through chapter uh, 16 covers the period of the Judges in a fairly chronological manner. There's some overlap between the Judges. But it begins with the first judge, Othniel, and goes through the sixth major judge, who is Samson. That is an indictment on the leadership of the nation because they have succumbed to relativism. They had the same problem we have in uh, our society today. And that is there's been a rejection of God as the absolute. And once you remove God, what fills the gap, what, what is sucked into that vacuum, is human Relativism, And so everybody becomes a law unto themselves. And once everybody begins, becomes a law unto themselves, then society begins to fragment. And, every, and you have the polarization of different groups because there's no longer a spiritual unity based on an absolute. And this is what happened during the period of the judges in Israel. So that by the time of the end of that period, under the judgeship of Samson, there is no... Uh, final deliverance from the Philistines, and it is only by comparing Judges with, Samson, uh, with 1 Samuel we realize that the prophet Samuel was the last of the Judges, and it is only as a result of his Bible teaching and his ministry and that that generation responded with positive volition to his teaching and the teaching of those associated with him that the nation is finally able to throw off the yoke of the uh, of the Philistines. That's the framework. But then when you come to chapter 17 and 18, the author of Judges is giving an indictment of the people. We have an indictment of the leadership from 3.6 to the end of 16, and in 17 through 21, there's an indictment of the people. What, what was it? What were the causes that, that uh, undergirded the apostasy and the failure of the people during this time? And we see that that it is religious apostasy. And religious apostasy always precedes moral collapse and national destruction. It's not the other way around. It begins with negative volition. And in the United States of America, we can trace that negative volition back to the midpoint of the 19th century. Now, someone might say, well, Pastor, there were a lot of things going on then that were positive. The Moody revivals, later on there were... Uh, revivals under people like Billy Sunday, and then what about Billy Graham? There have, of course, there have been positive trends that have gone on, but nationally, nationally, go back to the mid 19th century, and there's a rejection of truth when, when uh, American academia and seminaries bought into liberal Protestant theology. That was a clear, prominent rejection of absolute truth. We bought into the subjective relativism in our universities and colleges of the philosophies of people like Immanuel Kant, Kierkegaard, Hegel, and others. And now we have, uh, we have schools, universities, colleges that are so dominated by moral relativism and academic relativism that what's happened is it's produced academic arrogance. And if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're taking a stand for 
for the truth of God's Word, and you, even if you don't even mention that you're a Christian, but you just voice opinions that are consistent with God's Word, you'll be graded down in the classroom, and you'll be laughed out of the classroom. There's no tolerance left anymore for anyone that's a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and positive to doctrine. There's tolerance for every other perversion in the country, but there's no tolerance for anyone who holds to biblical absolutes. Absolutes have all been rejected, and in their place, people have moral relativism. This is exactly what happened with Israel. So we see this the, the development of apostasy with this one individual named Micah. And last time we... We looked at that and we saw that Micah was very religious. His mother seems very religious, but they rejected the revealed will of God. Micah even has a, 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 a name that has uh, religious overtones. In the Hebrew, it's Micaiah. That final Yah is the first syllable in Yahweh, which indicates that they, his mother was, had some kind of blessing upon uh, Micah. But it's just the words. It's just going through the motions. It's just external ritual or form without any internal reality. And we discovered as we went through those first six verses that he was already in idolatry. He had a collection of idols. And, uh, in fact, he was, uh, and it was because of his religious idolatry. He has no values. He steals from his mother and uh, stole 1,100 shekels from his mother, which we saw was probably 150 to $200,000 in today's money. His mother utters a curse on whoever stole the money. She didn't know it was her son. He's fearful of, of uh, being cursed, so he uh, owns up to it. And his mother says, May you be blessed by the Lord, my son. So he returned the money after admitting it. And she then said in, in verse um, 3, I had wholly dedicated... Notice the word holy. Holy dedicated the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make a carved image and molded image. Now, therefore, I will return it to you. Thus he returned the silver to his mother. Then his mother took, what, 200 shekels. Notice there's a difference. Pointed that out last time that often in religion people make all kinds of statements about their devotion to God, but, but there's no real, real serious devotion there. Somehow she kept, managed to look at that 1,100 shekels of silver. That was too much to give God. I'll just give him 200. That's enough. And I'll keep the other 900 for myself. But it sounded good to, make, to say I would give him 1,100. Then we're told in verse 5 that the man Micah had a shrine. He had his own alternative religious setting in competition with the tabernacle at Shiloh. And if we were to look at a map of Israel... At that time, we'll see right here in this area, this is the hill country of Ephraim in the center part of Israel. And Shiloh is located almost dead center in Ephraim. And this area of Ephraim, probably not too far away, but to the north, to the west and northwest of Shiloh, is where Micah and his mother lived. So he is not far away. He's not, he can't have the rationale, well, it's too far to go down to Shiloh to the tabernacle, so I'll just have a, uh, another place here. He is in close proximity to the tabernacle in Shiloh. And he is completely into his own self-developed religion. Micah, uh, verse 5 reads, A man, Micah, had a shrine, made an ephod and household idol. So he's developed a whole ritual system. And in modern parlance, we would say he's developing his own cult. This is sort of the ancient version of Mary Baker, Glover, Patterson, Eddie, or Joseph Smith, someone who's developing their own alternative religious system. And he consecrated one of his sons who became his priest. So it's a family operation. He has a son. And, um, and so that tells us that Micah, his mom, and his son must be uh, fairly old. His son must be at least an adolescent. So that means Micah must be at least in his late 30s or 40s, and his mother must be uh, somewhat older. And then we're told that one of the key verses in, in uh, Judges, in those days there was no king in Israel. That's not a reference necessarily to the Davidic Monarchy or the monarchy of Saul, but as a reminder that the people had rejected Yahweh as king. According to the Mosaic Law, as I've stated, God was the executive branch of government. 
He was the king over Israel. They've rejected him. And so in, when, once you reject God, God's out of the picture. What moves into the vacuum is man. Man becomes a god unto himself and begins to set his own standards. And everybody wants to be their own god, so everyone starts to do what's right in their own eyes. So we come to now to verse 7. Verse 7, Now there was a young man from Bethlehem of Ju- in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he was staying there. Now a couple of points in terms of translation. As we look at this, the scene has shifted from Micah and his mom and their house to another individual. He's a young man. The Hebrew word is na'ar. Na'ar means an adolescent. There's a couple of cases where David used the word na'ar to refer to Absalom, but that would be the kind of uh, term of endearment that a father might use of his son, even though it's an adult son. He might still refer to him as his child, as as a young man. But but na'ar primarily refers to anyone um, who is from a young child up to about uh, puberty or adolescence. So this is a young man from Bethlehem indicates where he had lived in Judah of the family of Judah who was a Levite. Now that seems to be a a bit of a contradiction that he is said to have been of the family of Judah and a Levite. Those are two different sons of Jacob. They're two different tribes. So it's very possible that his mother was from one tribe and his father from another tribe. His father was a Levite. His mother might have been from Judah. And so he was living in Bethlehem. Now, there's a couple of things we ought to note about this because it tells us something about his spiritual condition. First of all, he's, he's young. He is probably a teenager in his adolescent years. And so the writer of Judges is emphasizing this because according to the Mosaic Law, a priest needed to be at least 30 years of age according to Numbers 4 verse 3 and 30. Now, Numbers 8, 24 to 26 suggests possibly a lower age limit of 25 years, but the point from those two passages is that a priest, for a man to function as a priest, he had to be at least 25 years of age. So there's absolutely no concern whatsoever here for any of the requirements of the Mosaic Law. They don't matter at all. He's considering himself a Levite, even though he may be a half-Levite. He's going to go do what he wants to do. The second thing we we note here is that he is from Bethlehem. He is from Bethlehem, and that fact is repeated three times in this passage. Now, whenever the Holy Spirit repeats something, even a couple of times, we ought to pay attention to it. So we ought to ask the question, why does the writer want us to pay attention to the fact that he's from Bethlehem? Well, there are some people who think that that Judges was really written as sort of a propaganda piece during the monarchy to uh, establish and defend the Davidic monarchy. But this is not pro-David. Where's David from? David is from Bethlehem. Later on, Bethlehem is going to be called the city of David. But here the writer is clearly objective, and he is going to paint a very nasty picture of Bethlehem here. Bethlehem is painted by this because they produced this heretic. So this is nothing positive about Bethlehem. In fact, it's, it's, it's an embarrassment to Bethlehem and to Judah, as well as to all of Israel. And then we're told that he is from the tribe of, of Levi, so he's at least half Levitical, but he's living in Bethlehem. Now, if we look at various passages in the, in the Levitical law, in the Mosaic law, what we'll discover is that... Um, for example, in Joshua 21, 9 to 16, there's a list of cities given for the inhabitation of Levites. Remember, in the Old Testament, this is important to pull in our doctrine at the end here. In the Old Testament, every tribe was given an inheritance or a possession in the land. Every tribe except the Levites. Levites were in the land, but they didn't possess the land. Instead, God assigned 48 cities in Israel for the inhabitation of the Levites so that the Levitical priests would be spread out throughout the land. But he's not living in a Levitical city. So he's living where he wants to and he's doing whatever he wants to. It just substantiates the idea that everyone is doing 
what's right in their own eyes. And this is showing that even the religious leaders are doing what's right in their own eyes and have complete disregard for the Mosaic Law. And we see here that as he leaves, he's sojourning. It's like he's going out looking for the will of God for his life, like so many Christians. They don't have any doctrine, and they're just waiting for some sort of, uh, any kind of open-door opportunity to come along. And with no doctrinal discernment, if it looks like it's an open-door and opportunity, then, then this must be God's will. He's really just an opportunist. See, the thing is that, that God often leads through closed doors. I mean, just think about it. God, God's will for, was for Israel to go into the land of Canaan and to conquer the people. The people were resistant. That's pretty much a closed door, I would think. Uh, at least that's how the Exodus generation saw it. When they sent the spies into the land, they said, we can't do it. It's a closed door. It must not be God's will, despite what he said. So just because the door is open doesn't mean it's God's will. Satan is an expert at opening doors for us and uh, getting us distracted and deceived. And sometimes God is leading us through a closed door because it's in the process of overcoming difficulty and opposition that we're going to trust God and see his, his deliverance. So this young man isn't following God's lead at all. Also, we note that he's not... Uh, in verse 8 it says, Then the man departed from the city, from Bethlehem and Judah, to stay wherever he might find a place. And as he made his journey, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. Notice, he's not joining with other Levites according to the prescription of the law. He's out there on his own. It's a solo act. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Furthermore, we're going to see that he's not going to serve in the name of Yahweh, but in the name of Micah. Now, look at the... He goes to the hill country... And if you look at this map here, we're looking towards the west. It's a sideways shot of the land. And this is the hill country of Ephraim in the middle. Now, we just got through in chapter 16 dealing with the apostasy in, in, uh, uh, with, with Samson, and he was of the tribe of Dan. And where this is headed, we have to... Chapter 17 is the foundation for chapter 18. Chapter 18, we're going to see the apostasy of the tribe of Dan and all the mechanics of that apostasy. And Dan is going to be unable to take their inheritance in, in uh, chapter 18. And that re- references back to what we first covered in Judges chapter 1. They have an inheritance that God's assigned to them, but they fail to take it. Now, the point of application there, for those of you who have been here for a while is to remind us that when we come to those inheritance passages in the New Testament that say if you commit this sin, that sin, this other sin, if you're, a, if you're a sodomite, if you're a feminine, if you're a liar, if you're a murderer, whatever it might be, if you practice any of these sins, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And everybody comes along and wants to make the point that inherit the kingdom of God is entry into heaven. So if you commit any of these sins or you practice any of these sins, well, you can't be saved. That's not what it's saying. See, Dan is saved. They're in the land, but they are not going to take their possession because of their apostasy. That's the same thing that happens with many Christians. They are given blessings contingently and an inheritance contingently, but they will never realize it because of apostasy. And the root of apostasy is going to be negative volition, and the root of Dan's apostasy is going to be the the false religion established here by Micah. That's where this is going. So I just want to point that out on this map, the proximity of Dan, because Dan is going to be influenced by this one guy's false religion in Ephraim. They're going to adopt it, and eventually they're going to take this uh, young Levite for their own and offer him a bigger, better church, as it were, with a little higher salary, and he's going to have a staff and a Office and he's going to have a choir and all kinds of wonderful things they'll promise him. And uh, so he's going to go with them all the way up north, and they're just going to steal somebody else's land. But it's not their God-defined inheritance. And they forfeit that. They're still in the land, but they're forfeiting their inheritance. That's what will happen with many believers in heaven. They will forfeit their inheritance. They'll still be in the kingdom, but they will not be in an uh, an heir of the kingdom or possess the, the kingdom. We're getting ahead of ourselves. So let's go back and look at the passage here in verse 9. Micah said to the priest, Where do you come from? And he said, I am a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah. That's our third mention of Bethlehem just 
to make sure we get the point that Bethlehem is associated with heresy here. I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to stay wherever I may find a place. Not where the Lord leads me, but wherever I may find a place. See, this is the same kind of subjective um, means that many Christians use to find God's will. Just whatever happens, whatever opens, that must be God's will. There's no doctrine here. This guy has no doctrinal framework for discernment. He's just, wherever he gets an opportunity, he's going to assume somehow that must be God's will. This is how we practice religion. We, something comes along, we want to do it, we slap God's name on it, that must be God's will. Now we've validated whatever it is we want to do. We've uh, justified our own agenda, and then we go our own way, assuming that God must bless whatever we've defined. And that's how Micah and this Levite operate. Verse 10, Micah then said to him, Dwell with me and be a father and a priest to me. Notice, a father and a priest to me, not to Yahweh. So he is going to be a priest to Micah. And Micah is going to sweeten the pot. He says, I'll give you ten pieces of silver a year, so you're going to have a secure salary that's uh, fairly profitable, and a suit of clothes. Now, that was difficult to come by in that day, so he's going to provide clothing for him, food, shelter, and clothing, and maintenance, and a decent salary. So the Levite said, obviously God must have provided this for me. It must be God's will. So he goes in and begins to uh, operate and set up this false religious system. Verse 11, And the Levite agreed to live with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. Notice the irony here. He said, be a father to me. And now the Levite becomes like one of his sons. So he's brought into his family, and yet he is going to be a father in the sense of leading him spiritually. So it's sort of a self-inventive religion. Uh, Verse 12, so Micah consecrated the Levite, which means he ordained him, and the young man became his priest and lived in the house of Micah. Now, to wrap up in conclusion, I want to focus on about six key points that are here. Seven key points for us to focus on. First of all, this chapter represents one of the lowest points in the history of the nation Israel because it presents the foundation for the religious apostasy throughout the entire nation. It's the apostasy of this one man that is going to influence all the other nations, I mean all the other tribes in the nation, and eventually lead to the uh, fall of the nation. Warning. Whenever you meet someone who's wrapped themselves in the cloak of religion and ritual and a lot of religious terminology, rather than the revealed Word of God, beware. They are like Micah and they are the enemy of truth. Whenever you meet someone who's wrapped up in the verbiage of religion, it always amazes me. You you will notice, if you ever go to another church, that there is a tremendous absence of this kind of religious verbiage here. I go some places and people always praise the Lord and thank Jesus. and you know Their language is just peppered with all these holy words. That doesn't mean that you are you understand the Bible or that you're true. It just means you've got a superficial religion. That kind of thing really doesn't impress God or impress anybody else, or it shouldn't. Point number two, the use of proper religious terminology is not a sign of spirituality or orthodoxy. The use of religious terminology is not a sign of spiritual spirituality or orthodoxy. Notice in this passage... The, the mother says in verse 2, Blessed be my son by the Lord. In verse 3 and 4, she says, I wholly dedicate the silver from my hand to the Lord. And in verse 13, Micah says, Now I know the Lord will prosper me, seeing I have a Levite as my priest. A lot of religious verbiage, but it's all apostasy. Point number three, religion does not restrain morality. Notice they're very religious but immoral. He's stealing from his mother. Religion is not the answer. You have people today in our society screaming about prayer in the schools and all these other religious activities, that if we just had more religion in the marketplace of ideas, there would be more stability. But religion, apart from the truth, is just as destructive as immorality. 
because it is seductive and deceptive. Religion does nothing to restrain morality. Only truth does. Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It is not religion, but the truth of the Bible that restrains immorality. Excuse me, religion, I said morality. Religion does not restrain immorality. Point number four, spirituality is a relationship with God based on the finished work of Christ on the cross, walking by means of the Spirit, confessing sin when necessary, and applying doctrine. It's not emotion, feelings, ritual, religious activity, or religious devotion. Spirituality has to do with what Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. The spiritual life of the church age is energized by the Holy Spirit. Spirituality is not based on morality, but on a walk and right relationship with God the Holy Spirit. Point number five, Micah's rejection of the divinely ordained worship site in Shiloh is analogous today to the rejection of worshiping God through learning Bible doctrine. Today, people don't want to learn the Word of God. They want to go to church. They want to sing songs. They want to feel good. They want to emote. They want to get up and give testimonies just to validate their own experience. But they don't want to sit and study the Word for an hour in order to learn what God has to say. I'm always reminded of J. Vernon McGee, who said, You can learn nothing significant about the Word of God in under 30 minutes. Point number six, religion doesn't always deny the teaching of Scripture. It often offers something additional. They add to it. The Bible's great, but let's have something else. The Bible's good, but let's have the Book of Mormon, the Book of Pearl of Great Price, the Book of the Covenants. Add something to it. Charismatics add a post-salvation experience. Other religions add other things. The solution, point number seven, the solution is that we are to become thoroughly trained in the truth of the Word of God so that we can avoid being seduced by all the false teaching and false ideas in our culture. We're out of time. We need to remember that the core of everything is the grace of God is established here, and that is why God, despite the apostasy of Israel, continues to work with Israel, continues to bless them and prosper them, not because of who they are, but because of who He is. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank You for this opportunity to study Your Word this morning. We pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Scripture says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's not a matter of works. It's not a matter of baptism, not a matter of church attendance, not a matter of any other human factor. It is simply trusting in the complete work of Christ on the cross. We can add nothing to it. Jesus Christ paid it all. And, Father, we pray that you would uh, challenge us by the things that we have studied today, that we might realize the importance of doctrine, and that we might make it the highest priority in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.